Welcome to the Short Term Show, the show about short-term rentals and long-term wealth, with real property owners hosting real properties who are crushing it in the vacation and short-term rental space. And here's your host, Avery Carl. Good morning out there, all you short-term shoppers. It's Avery Carl, and I wanted to give you guys a quick reminder about something that I don't think I've done a good enough job of keeping you aware of. So I get a lot of emails from y'all every week, and I love getting emails from you. By the way, I love talking to our listeners, and a lot of them are asking for real estate agent recommendations in different markets. And what I don't think I've done a good job of is making sure that you guys are aware that the short-term show is actually a subsidiary of the short-term shop which is the largest short-term rental specific real estate team brokered by EXP. I have to say that or I get in trouble in the country. So we have offices in 12 of the top short-term rental markets in the country. And we are here to help you purchase your first, second, third, or 10th short-term rental. And if you buy with us in any of those markets, we have a whole back-end training program where we will teach you everything you need to know about managing your short-term rental remotely. Everything from setting up your Airbnb and VRBO listings to teaching you how to use all the property management software that you'll need, all the way down to helping you source your local boots on the ground like cleaners and handymen. And we have some awesome Facebook support communities that we want you guys to be a part of where we all share ideas and information about managing our short-term rental, which short-term rentals, which markets are the best, uh, what we're doing next, and all of that really fun stuff. So if you want to be a part of the short-term shop community, if you want to buy a house with us, we really want to help you guys. So head on over to the shorttermshop.com and click schedule a consultation. We'll see you there. If you invest in real estate or manage properties, you need banking that's truly built for your business. Many traditional banks make it difficult to sync banking information across many of the personal finance platforms that we as real estate investors use every day. This is why I recommend Relay. Relay is an online banking and money management platform that's a perfect fit for any real estate business. First, there are no account fees, no overdraft fees, and no minimum balances, which means you get to keep more money in your pocket. Relay also goes above and beyond the banking basics to help you understand precisely what you're earning, spending, and saving. You get up to 20 checking accounts to organize and allocate income for things like day-to-day expenses, investments, or taxes. And if you have multiple investment properties set up as separate business entities, that's no problem. Relay lets you open unlimited accounts and access everything from one single login. Best of all, Relay makes your bookkeeping speedy and meticulous by giving you ultra-detailed transaction data and directly syncing it back to QuickBooks Online and Xero. The ability to have so many separate bank accounts and allocation options in my user dashboard has really transformed my personal banking experience. I will never go back. It takes 10 minutes to apply for a Relay account, and you can do it online at RelayFi.com slash the short-term shop. So again, for more information and to open an account, go to RelayFi.com slash the short-term shop. Hey guys, welcome back to the short-term show. Today we have Beth and Atticus Mulholland. What a great name, by the way. (laughs) 
what a name sound like a movie star and uh they are short-term rental investors in multiple markets they invest as a couple obviously because they are married not brother and sister and uh, (laughs) i know the listeners really like to hear the the couple stories because a lot of times one person in the relationship is all about real estate investing and the other one has to be convinced so we'll get to that later but thank you guys so much for coming on how's it going Hey, Bree, thanks for having us. We're excited to chat with you and talk a little bit about our story, which is, you know, just, uh, I think, kind of like everybody, like we stumbled into this originally and then kind of find this passion for it and then it snowballs from there. Um, but yeah, we're uh, we're excited to chat about it. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. Thank you for having us on. Yeah, yeah. I'm really excited to hear y'all's story, or I know it, but I'm excited for for other people to hear it. So let's start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got selves and how you got into real estate investing. Yeah. So, um, you know, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about how one person's usually initiator, right? And that was not me. Um, that was 100% him. He's been the person from the get-go who had like the big financial vision and, you know, like these are the things we do to help ourselves down the road to have good retirement, all this stuff. And I'm just kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, let's go to the movies, you know, um, spend the money, have fun. Um, and it took a little while for me to really see the vision of real estate investing. Um, but it probably really kicked off when we moved from high cost of living area, Boston, Massachusetts to lower cost of living at the time, Dallas, Texas. And we were able to buy a house that we would never have been able to buy up here and started to click in my head a little bit, huh, this stuff he's been talking about, like there's something to it. Like, you know, when you can leverage real estate. Um, We had grand plans to kind of rent the first house we bought and move into another one. Of course, like everything in life, those kind of got shot to hell um and we ended up moving back to boston back to expensive cost of living and ended up shelving our plans for a little while until we stumbled across bigger pockets got really into listening to some of the episodes and then we actually stumbled across um you (laughs) and learned about um the severeville market and i knew a tiny bit about it because my family had a place about an hour away Um, but we really just, you know, we saw the numbers and we're like, you know what, like, let's, let's do it. Let's go for this. Let's jump in. Let's finally make that move. Um, and I was convinced at that point. And now I think I probably love it more than even he does. (laughs) You definitely like, you definitely like the management aspect of it. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I think, you know, we kind of stumbled, I would say stumbled into short-term rentals to some extent. Um, you know, at the time, when we first started looking, I think we were, you know, kind of more set on like small multifamily yeah. and then, you know, kind of looking at the returns and what we could do. And, you know, I think like Beth said, I think bigger pockets was part of the, you know, part of our, you know, motivation. There's a lot of reading on there and trying to learn as much as we could. And then, um, you know, setting up a call with, with you and then, um, you know, kind of, kind of just went from there and then uh, just kind of expanded our portfolio from there and just kind of continued building on it. Got <laughs> <Yeah>, It's <definitely. laughs> It's hard to stop once you um, once you start. So, yeah, once you get over that hump of being able to get like one or two properties, and then the the down payments kind of they yeah. you know kind of start rolling in, it yeah. really gets a lot easier. But let's talk about what's in your portfolio. What what do you guys have? Yeah, so that first property we bought, um, we bought right at the beginning of 2020, right before the pandemic. Um, And I know a lot of people have kind of said this, you know, it's like, oh, we didn't know what was going to happen. And it ended up being a great thing. 
Um, but so we have a one bedroom cabin in Sevierville that we bought then. Uh, following year, we bought another one bedroom in Sevierville. Um, and then this year we branched out and bought a six bed in Kerala, North Carolina. So Outer Banks um, and added also a studio cabin in Sevierville. Okay. So that's four total. Did I yep. count that right? Yep. All right. And what are the bedroom counts of all those? I know six bed and the Outer Banks will hang tight on that one. What are the other three? Yeah, they're um, two one beds in a studio. So we've kept it small in the Smokies um, and that model's worked really well for us. Our small ones do stay like 100% booked almost. And, you know, occupancy rate isn't everything, but those little ones, if you're, if you need a really high occupancy rate to just be comfortable, yep. those are the way to go for sure. Yeah. And I think, I think just having the limited square footage too, you know, there's less, less to furnish, less to maintain. Uh, we've done a fair amount of work on our properties. A lot of it, are, you know, we did ourselves and it's just the one beds are definitely very manageable for people. You yeah. know, as you first get into it, it's, you know, going and we went to furnish that six bed. I mean, it's just a lot. There's just a lot there, you know, where it's, you know, with a one bed, it's, it's very manageable. Um, and even for people who are new at it, you definitely can kind of just dive in and just get right into it. And it doesn't, it doesn't take quite as much effort or, or knowledge of what you're getting yourself into. You can screw up a little more too and have yeah. room to. <laughs> totally. So let's talk about, so you've got four in a relatively short period of time. How are you financing these? Yeah, absolutely. So as you kind of touched on, like the first one's always the hardest. You have to figure out like how you're going to pull that money. Cause if you just had a bunch of money sitting around, you probably would have been doing this already. Um, so the first one, we did take a 401k loan um, and we used that to finance the property. And luckily it was very turnkey, um, despite the fact that we got a pretty good deal on it. Um, so we didn't have to put much into that one um, and made it kind of an easy, you know, int entrance into this world. Um, and then we were able to get the second one with the first year proceeds from the first one. Um, so we took basically all the money that we made that first year on our first cabin um, and used it to buy the second cabin. And that one we did do a rehab on um, that we self-financed and then we just paid ourselves back with proceeds. Okay. So your first one, you took a 401k loan and then everything else after that, you've just used the income from your previous ones to buy that. Okay. That's yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. We've rolled everything forward. We haven't really started taking any money from our properties yet. We keep everything kind of in the business fund. Yeah, I think that is so smart. And and I hear that question a lot is like, how did you scale so quickly? Well, I didn't spend any yeah. of the money that we made <laughs> on the property. It's like the key to scaling is not to spend the, your, your rental income on you know your day-to-day -day life or vacations or anything like that. If you really want to scale, you do have to turn around and roll that right back in. So that's four properties for you guys in a little under two years, basically with no money out of your own pocket. I mean, 401k loan, we're not going to call that your own cash typically. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the, some of the rehab, you know, we did, we did put some of our own money into and, you know, furnishing the properties and stuff like that. But, you know, a big chunk of it, like you said, is just rolled, rolled forward. And I think that is a really, a really important thing for people to know, because I think that's a question that comes up a lot is, you know, how do people move so yeah. quickly on so many properties? And, um, it really is just kind of keeping your, you know, your personal life the way it is. And it's, it's somewhat, you know, kind of delayed gratification, right? <laughs> We're not taking money out of the properties right now. All that money is being reinvested into the business to either upgrade the properties or buy additional properties. And that's just a huge part of it. And part of, you know, it's part of the mindset too of, you know, how, how are you going to scale and how are you going to build your business? 
That's really, really smart investing. So did you, when you're doing all these loans and, you know, rolling the previous income, what types of loans are you getting on these? Are they conventional or did you go, uh, almost said DTI, DTR? We've been, we've been lucky to be able to do conventional so far. And I mean, part of that is, you know, we do have jobs and, um, you know, we've been able to keep the room in our DTI with, with using the income from the next property for, from the previous years, you know, tax returns and all that good stuff. Um, so the first one was a second home loan. Um, we actually refinanced out of that one um, this year to buy one of the ones we bought. So it's now an investment loan. Um, second one was a, what do we fit 15? Down? That was a 20%, 20% down. down investment loan. Um, and then the two we bought this year, um, we'll talk a little bit more about Outer Banks uh, with you because I know you want to touch on that. But um, mm-hmm. that one was a second home loan. That one that one has a lot of personal appeal to us as well, which we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last one was another investment, 20% down. So they've all been conventional. So something that I really want to pull out of you guys' story for the listeners right now is you guys have kept it really, really simple. So it does not have to be this big, difficult thing where you're having to do all this creative financing and partnerships and all this craziness. You just bought a house with a conventional loan, kept all the money that you made on that one and bought another one with a conventional loan, which I think a lot of people overlook that about short-term rentals is that they're so easy in terms of being able to get, like it's a lot easier to go get a conventional loan on a single family than it is like, say, even like a million dollar single family, I guess jumbo isn't technically conventional, but you know, stay with me guys. So a million dollar single family is a lot easier to finance than like a million dollar seven or eight unit. So yeah, you just, you don't have, I think so many people get so into real estate investing and listening to all the podcasts and reading all the books and listening to all these people's different strategies. And a lot of people have crazy strategies that with short terms, you can just buy in markets where it's going to come furnished and get a conventional loan on a single family and just go. So I really, really like how simple you guys have kept it. You've still been able to scale pretty quickly and it just, it doesn't have to be that hard. And I think you guys are a really good example of that. I will give all the credit for the simplicity to him. He is the mastermind (laughs) of all that. I I am the one who's like, Ooh, what can we do creatively just for creative sake? Yeah. I think there's a lot of people out there that, that want to be creative just, just for the sake of being creative, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it's been talked about too on some of the other episodes um, of the short-term show. But you know, the the cheapest financing you can get is conventional yeah. mortgages. If you can afford the down payments, the cheapest financing you can get up to the limit is going to be a conventional mortgage. Um, and I think it helps too to just you know to talk to you know whoever you're working with in terms of um, getting mortgages and just run them through your numbers, see if they can make something work for you. Yeah. And don't automatically assume that just because you already have a number of, you know, of, of mortgages that you're not gonna be able to get another one. Um, you know, I think when we went in early this year, when we bought the two properties, yeah. that was kind of our thought. We we're like, oh man, there's no way we're going to get another one of these, but you yeah, know, going through, it, back to back. Yeah. going through it, going through the numbers and everything. And, you know, at the end of the day, it worked out and, you know, it's not, it's not as difficult necessarily as, as sometimes we like to think. And, you know, there is, there are ways around having to get too creative with the financing. If you have, you know, if you have decent credit and, um, you know, just, just go to those resources that, uh, that know. Yeah. And totally I, I think agree. keeping, you know, keeping our W2 income or well, him really, I've been less consistent, but, um, you know, having that, 
until we kind of reach the point where we're ready to start drawing from the properties, you know, that makes it easier to keep getting those easy conventional mortgages. Without that, it would be hard. Another just very like people totally overlook this. Keep your W-2 as long as you can because you're that W-2 is what's helping you buy more properties. The longer you keep it, the more properties you can buy faster. I know the goal is for everyone to quit their job, and I totally get that. I've done it myself. But uh, you kind of like are building this fortress of cash flow around your W-2 so that eventually you can just, you know, pull that W-2 out of the middle of it and you have all this cash flow. So I think that's also a really smart thing that a lot of people just try to get too creative and say, okay, I have two properties. I'm netting $50,000 a year. I'm quitting now. Yeah, and right. I think that's really smart to keep your W-2 as long as you, as long as you can. You guys are like the, like have done everything perfect in my <laughs> Hardly, <laughs> say, hardly perfect. <laughs> I, I say it helps to have a W-2 you like. I mean, that's yes. definitely, definitely part of it. Um, yeah, I, I definitely like it because I've never liked mine. So <laughs> me, either. <laughs> me either. All right. So let's talk about, we talked about financing. Let's talk about choosing markets. So you kind of talked about how you chose the Sevierville market when you said, okay, I think I want to buy in a new market. How did you choose Outer Banks? Yeah. Um, so it, it, there was a lot of personal draw here. Um, we weren't necessarily looking for a market that we felt personally connected to, but we ended up, um, uh, we were, you know, last year the pandemic was still going pretty strong in the winter. And so for Thanksgiving, I was pregnant. I was probably 20 weeks pregnant. And so we we're like, you know what, let's just give you a getaway just us. Let's um, let's go somewhere like low key, last kind of getaway for us. Let's rent a house on the Outer Banks. So we did um, and took the dogs and had a great time, even though the beach is dead. You know, it's kind of my favorite time of year there. But um, got away to the Outer Banks. We're like, you know, this is a really cool area. Like, why? Like, why haven't we really looked at this yet? And I was like, you know, I think Avery even mentioned something about like, maybe the Outer Banks is coming down the road. So I was like, let me just email her. It's Thanksgiving. She won't get back to me. But like, let's just see if that's coming down the pipeline. I'm pretty sure you emailed me back on Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, but yeah, you, you know, you mentioned that it was something on your radar. So we we're like, all right, let's kind of keep the wheels turning. You know, it's on their radar and it makes us feel like maybe we're making a pretty good judgment call here. Um, so uh, I guess it was like about a month late. It was Christmas Eve. We yeah. put, we ended up connecting with um, Meg. Shout out Meg. She's amazing. Um, agent out in the Outer Banks. And uh, we made an offer on Christmas Eve. And I think it was accepted like a few days after Christmas. And that was that. So it was a property that had been sitting um, for a while. I think they just kind of timed it badly and maybe overpriced it a little bit for the timing. Um, and we, we felt like we got a good deal. And uh, did some rehab over the winter. And that was that it, it tends to be, we tend to move quickly once we figure out what we're doing. <laughs> so there's a few differences between the Smokies and the Outer Banks that I want to ask you guys about that. I, I think a lot of investors get a little worried or nervous about when they're used to a market like the Smokies that has really high occupancy rate and they're moving into a market that might be a little bit more seasonal. One of the top things I see, one of the limiting beliefs that I see with investors is, I really want to buy in this beach market or that beach market or this ski market or that ski market, but it's seasonal. So I don't want to do that. So now that you've had, we're almost through the first high season. What do you guys have to say to that? You want to jump on that one? Sure. Um, <laughs> you know, I think, I mean, it's definitely true. I mean, you have to understand the seasonality of the markets. 
Um, I think you mentioned it earlier that, you know, if you have, you know, like the small properties in the Smokies, right, they stay pretty much 100% booked or close to it. You know, your, your occupancy rate is very high, um, even if your ADR is lower. Um, but I think, you know, number one, you know, for us was kind of just trusting the numbers. Um, you know, you, we have obviously some experience in the Smokies. So, you know, just trusting the numbers that you have and then using, you know, all the resources available to you, like the air DNA data is definitely, you know, part of that. It's not the only piece of the puzzle, but it's part of it. And then just plan, you know, planning for the slower times of the year. Um, it definitely takes, you know, some restraint, I guess, and planning. You see all this, all this money coming in in the high season. Um, but it's, you know, some of that needs to be set aside for, you know, your, your January, February, March, which is going to be the slowest time in these beach markets. Um, and also just, you know, I think the other piece of it too, is just being ready for high season, right? Like we are the, the property's booked every single day, you know, Sunday turns every single week, all the way through summer. Um, you know, I think Luke's mentioned that a couple of times on some of the groups too, is, you know, in the summertime is not the time to be trying to get stuff done at a beach market. It's not, not going to be the time to try to get stuff done. Um, and say like your ski market in, in February. Um, but just planning, planning everything out so that everything's ready to roll. You've done all of your preventative maintenance and, you know, hopefully you have a pretty smooth, you know, summer season and the off season, it's really getting ready for the next, getting ready for the next summer season. Um, you know, for us, we, we plan to use the property a little bit in the off season. Um, like Beth mentioned, we, um, we like that time at the beach when it's a little bit quieter. Um, and I think we can get, you know, can, can use the property for ourselves as well. Um, but it's definitely, it's definitely different and you gotta be yeah. ready for it. Cause it's going to be, you know, there's, there's a period of time where it's just dead um, and that's to be expected um, and it should be planned for as well. Yeah. And I mean, we will be, you know, by our projections, we'll be negative a few months. So it is about, you know, saving money. It's not just that you're not going to see cash flow. It's that you're actually going to have to pay bills. Um, and so, you know, I think just it, it really just does come down to knowing that, knowing that, being aware of that and planning accordingly, you're still making the same amount of money at the end of the year. So as long as you've made your numbers, uh, you've run your numbers correctly, and you've planned and you've got enough to get you through that slow season. I mean, it really should just be an opportunity to do the things you've been wanting to do all summer, right? Like to make that backyard awesome and to get that extra landscaping done and to repaint the house and all that good stuff. And like, then it's not stressful because you knew that's the way it was going to happen. You knew those months were going to be empty. Yeah, I think where a lot of people get hung up is that I'm going to be negative in January and February. Like I might, might have one booking in the that month, but I'm still going to have to pay my bills. I think people get so hung up on that, that they miss the bigger picture of, well, yeah, but you're $75,000 positive for the entire year. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I think, you know, I think it's, it's good for people to acknowledge that. I mean, it's, it is the reality of, you know, any of these more seasonal markets. Um, and, you know, unfortunately not everything is the Smokies. The Smokies is a great market, um, but there's other markets out there too, that are, that are good, um, that are great vacation rental markets and, perform well. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that we've always looked at is just sticking, you know, sticking with those established vacation yeah. rental markets, um, you know, with the Smokies, the Outer Banks has been, um, you know, a vacation rental market for a long, long time. Um, a lot of the properties are with property managers in the Outer Banks, but, you know, this, there's a lot of, um, a lot more people, I think, coming in and self-managing now. And I would say the level of the properties is, is going up, um, but it's been established for so long. Yeah. Um, and it's always a destination for people, um, on the East, you know, in the Eastern part of the U S. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I don't think it's any secret that I prefer established vacation rental markets to other types of areas. Not that other types of areas don't work. I just, my 
the way that I do things has worked for me. So that's what, you know, that's what we talk about a lot here is not having to reinvent the wheel. You know, the, right. this wheel has been here in these markets forever and ever. We don't have to reinvent it. I like a minimal amount of bullshit in my life and reinventing the wheel is a lot of bullshit. So minimal bullshit buying in established vacation markets. Definitely agree. Yeah. But we did like the opportunity that it's it's slowly shifting away from kind of this big property managers to a little bit more of the self-management. So we're like, you know, there's an opportunity there to be a part of the shift, which is, I think, beneficial. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a minute, because that the most recent market that I bought in a short term rental in is the same way down in the Forgotten Coast. So, yes, it's very established as a vacation rental market, same as Outer Banks. So these areas They've been vacation rentals forever, but there's not a lot of like self-managed data. There's really yeah. only data on, or even if there is data on these big archaic property management companies that manage the majority of the properties in that market. So it makes it a little difficult when you're trying to analyze as a self-manager what, you know, how well you can do versus what you're seeing in the market, because there's just not a lot of self-managers yet. So to me, that's a big opportunity for myself because I know what I can do versus what a, a, a big archaic management company can do. So I like that. That's an opportunity for me. But a lot of investors want to see, you know, that they need that comfort of seeing a lot of self-managed data. So how did you guys kind of get around that? I think we just took the numbers as our most conservative version, right? If we know that these are property management companies, we can see the difference when we go on, you know, Airbnb, Verbo, and see what the people who are self-managing are listing for versus the management companies. Yes, the management companies are booked out for a year, but I don't want to be booked out for a year. I can't plan a year in, in advance, you know, like I don't, I don't want to be booked a year out. Um, so I think for us, it was like, all right, we just know that these numbers are likely very conservative. So if these numbers work, then we're golden. Um, we can only really go up from there, hopefully. And I think for us, too, we felt like the Outer Banks was an appreciating market. So we're like, you know, worst case scenario here is we're not going to lose money. This market's not about to tank. It's a well-established market. People want homes here, whether it's second homes or vacation rentals. Um, you know, there's really no losing here um, in the big picture. Obviously, there's short-term losing, but... <laughs> Yeah, I think the enemy method definitely works um, <clears throat> in terms of just going on and looking, you know, if you don't have a lot of data necessarily, um, you can try the enemy method on Airbnb or Verbo and um, pull some information from other self-managers. Even if there's not a lot, it gives you at least a little bit of a picture. Um, you know, I think, you know, for people too, I think just knowing that, you know, there's no way to eliminate all the risk. No. This is real estate investing. Um, you have to be willing to take on a little bit of risk. And for us, you know, in this case, like, you know, like Beth was just saying, I mean, the risk, the risk was worth it. It's a calculated risk. Um, you know, we feel like we know our numbers. We feel like we have enough experience to kind of have vetted out, you know, the market in general, um, with all of the other data that, you know, we were able to get from both the short-term shop and, you know, just the aggregate, let's just say, um, tourism industry data that, you know, is published by the local counties, right? All that information's out there. You know, people can source it on the internet, um, but just kind of building that picture for yourself um, to try to make the most educated decision you can um, and try to eliminate as much risk as possible. But at the end of the day, you know, I think for every one of us who's buying properties and, you know, getting into this and whether it's long terms or short terms, there is some level of risk associated yeah. with investing. Totally, totally agree. And I see some people that will get hung up on, um, you know, oh, well, I need all I need to know there's like zero risk. I need a zero risk investment and, and it just doesn't exist. It doesn't matter what a great deal it is. It could be the 
best deal that any real estate investor has gotten in the entire century, there's yeah. still going to be risk associated with that. And you still have to manage that and you still have to manage the way you're going to manage the property, whether you're self-managing or whether you're putting it with a property manager, it's still your job to make sure that the property does what it's supposed to do. It's not like a crock pot where you just like set it and forget it, leave it on the counter and go, you know, go for a run or something. Right. And I think, you know, too, for people who are kind of running their numbers, right. And trying to make a decision, you know, don't get hung up on like the hundred dollar item. Yeah. And, you know, a lot, if you're, if a hundred dollars makes or breaks your deal, that's not going to be a good investment for you. Um, you know, I think, I think sometimes, you know, particularly when we started, right. You're getting, we're getting hung up on like, you know, is the cash flow going to be $800 or $875 a month? Um, and there's these little things that, you know, in hindsight, you know, are, are really not that big of a deal. Like a $5,000 repair, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, is really not that big of a deal. And if you're buying a good asset and it's a good investment, you know, don't let yourself get hung up on that $5,000 repair item on the inspection. Like, is that two years from now, after you've had, you know, two years of cash flow, um, on that property, is that $5,000 going to matter to you? I would say probably not. Um, and it's those type of things that you, particularly when you start, you can yeah. definitely get yourself psyched out that, okay, this is not a good deal. I'm not going to buy it because of this. But in the grand scheme of things, you might have profited, you know, $30,000 a year for two years and that you're not even thinking about that anymore. It's very easy for us to say, isn't it? When we're not the ones that are hung up on the $100. Um, I remember being right. hung up on the $100, but it, I wish I could have told myself. I wish I could have told myself back then, like, just chill. Stop with the panic attacks. It's going to be fine. It's not going to matter. And uh, yeah, it's it's hindsight really is 2020. It really and is. Wanna, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, okay, so you guys have three properties in the mountain market, one in a beach market. What do you see? Do you see a difference in guest expectations between your Smokies guests and your Outer Banks guests? Because I, I hear some people who own in different markets, like uh, our friend Siobhan, who's been on the on the show before. She owns in the Smokies and then she owned a few in Scottsdale. And she yeah. said she hated the Scottsdale ones because the guests were just so picky compared yeah. to the Smokies guests. Do you guys see any difference there or is it roughly the same? So I do see a difference and it's a little hard. Like I think part of it is beach versus mountains. And I think part of it is the size of the properties um, because I do see, you know, people with larger properties in the Smokies, I think have things that are more comparable to our larger property in Outer Banks. So there's a little bit of both pieces of that. Um, but I will say, I think people are very laid back in the Outer Banks for the most part. Um, I think people in beach markets are a little bit, you know, when they're doing that week long stay, because we do full week stays only in the summer. Um, in that market. That's just what people do. Um, I think because they're there for a full week and they know there's no gaps in between turns, they're okay with a maintenance guy coming in to repair the running toilet. And they're okay with the fact that the pool people come during their stay to service the pool. You know, all those little things that maybe people are a little more nitpicky about in the Smokies, or at least with, with us, they have been. Um, so you always try to kind of get in in between guests in the Smokies, whereas, you know, I'm like, all right, the maintenance guy's coming out today in Kerala. Um, so it's, there's a little bit of a laid backness and that may be the beach vibes. You know, they're at the beach all day. They're hanging by the pool. They don't really care what's happening in the house. They're crashing there. Um, it's also big groups. So it's not like it's private. It's not a couple's weekend getting away where they don't want to be interrupted. You know, we get a lot of couples in our, in our places, lots of, you know, honeymooners or, you know, our anniversary or whatever it may be. They want privacy. They want everything to work. 
Um, the big families coming to the beach, you know, they just want a place that has the amenities they need to enjoy their week. Um, so I will say somehow the larger place actually seems more laid back and, and a little bit less, um, less stressful in some ways. <laughs> I found that our, our bigger places will be, since it's, they're typically more than one family traveling at a time or like a set of friends and then one person will book. And then when they get there, it's the other people who didn't have anything to do with the actual booking that might like have an expectation that wasn't properly set. And then they are giving the the booker a hard time. Then the booker's like, well, we didn't realize it was going to be blah, blah, blah. And we're like, yeah, you did. It was in the, it was in the listing, but somebody who didn't read the listing is the person who's got the problem. So that's uh, something you kind of have to, a hump you have to get over with the bigger properties, but they just make so much more money that, you know, it's fine. But we yeah. found that with our, our, the longer stays are typically more okay with a maintenance person having to come or something like that. Yeah. So sure. that's cool. Do you see anything maintenance wise that I know in the Smokies, you know, having to deal with a hot tub is definitely like a maintenance item that comes up a lot. Is there anything like that in the outer banks that you kind of have to keep up with? Um, I mean, we've been really lucky so far, so I don't want to jinx it. I would say definitely like people getting in the hot tub with like sunscreen and stuff and like having to really outline be like, hey, if the hot tub's like foamy and nasty, it's probably because you got in there with sunscreen. So we just, you know, made some amendments to our messaging and made it really clear like, hey, this is the exact result you're going to get if you don't follow the instructions to shower before you get in the hot tub. So we just spelled it out. And since we haven't had an issue, um, so I think, you know, it all it all comes back to expectations, right? It's setting those expectations. It's being as clear as possible. Um, you know, I think a lot of people have talked to this year. I've seen in various groups about the refrigerator issues, right? People putting in a bunch of warm beer, a bunch of, you know, brand new food from the store that may or may not have been cold and then being surprised that the refrigerator is lacking. So, um, you know, we this year added some of that to our messaging. Hey, if the fridge seems a little slow, you probably put too much in it from the get go. Um, you know, at our Corolla place, we actually have a little mini fridge that beer can go in. So we say, put it in the mini fridge. Don't put it in the fridge. Um, so little things like that. And it's, you know, you just learn as you go. You you see it come up more than once. You're like, all right, now this is something that needs to be addressed. This is something I need to make my expectations more clear um, or set your expectations more clearly. Ah, uh, yes. A refrigerator is not going to make 12 cases of warm beer cold in 30 minutes. That nope. is an expectation that must be set this year. <laughs> yeah. It seems to be a specific definitely. problem this year, and maybe it's because it's been so hot. But yeah, it's uh, that was one we definitely added to like our, this is going to be a thing we get in front of. Well, so the last thing that I want to hit before we get to the end of the show is you guys bought, so starting in 2020, you've bought four properties in like the worst time to be able to get a deal on a property in, you know, mostly in 2020 and 2021 that everything was just multiple offers all the time, but you guys have managed to get some pretty good deals during the worst time to get a deal. How, how'd you guys make that happen? So I think, you know, I think the first property we kind of just, you know, we kind of lucked into um, at the beginning lucky. of 2020, um, the Smokies market was not as hot as it is as it is now. Um, so I think we kind of lucked into that one um, to some extent. The the second one, um, I would say, was definitely an overlooked property. Um, I think, you know, as we look for properties, we look for value add. And that's part of our strategy. Um, you know, we're pretty hands on people. Um, 
you know, we do a lot of the work ourselves. We're very involved in the rehab and scoping work and working with contractors and all that. So, um, on the second property, it was overlooked. It was a, a second home. Um, it was very dated. The furniture was atrocious, uh, horrible. <laughs> um, so that was all we had, we thought we were going to save some of it. Um, I think it's good to note too. We bought actually all the properties sight unseen. I think that's something too that people um, sometimes get hung up on. But we bought all of our properties sight unseen. Um, but we thought we were going to save some of the furniture. It all got trashed. Um, but we did a lot of work to that second property. I think it came out really nice. Um, but that was definitely part of the strategy. And I think it was overlooked by, you know, by other investors just because there was a lot of work to get it ready. Um, it took us, I think it was right around a hundred days to get it from closing to the time we went live, um, to, to get all that work done and get everything, everything done. So, um, and it wasn't in like any known neighborhood either, you know, it was just kind of a little off the beaten path neighborhood. So I think sometimes people overlook places like that as well. Just a lot of little factors that, um, you know, made people glance over it as they went on and then we were able to get it after it sat. Yeah. Poor quality listing photos, all that, yeah. all the same stuff that you look for in, you know, Terrible listing in photos. any market, you know, trying to find a, you know, a discount on a property. I love poor quality listing photos as an investor that our last deal, it got us, it was a brand new house. It had built, been built in 2019. We bought it in 2021 and the, pictures were just so bad. There were only like four and they'd been taken with like a flip phone and they were really dark with the curtains closed. So it looked yep. like complete junk. But I was like, wait a minute, this was built in 2019. There is no way this is junk. And we went and it was a three bedroom, but there was actually a partially finished heated and cooled like utility room on the downstairs floor that could easily be made into a bedroom. Didn't mention that anywhere. I love crappy listings. Those are my favorite ways to get deals because yep. it doesn't require a lot of effort on my part. Nope. I'm like, oh, these listings are crappy. Let's let's take a look at this. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and then I think, you Corolla know, Corolla was kind of luck too. Yeah. Corolla, we, we lucked into a little bit. I think, you know, like Beth said, it was timing. I mean, we have purchased all of our properties, I would say, in the slowest time of the year, which is over the winter. Um, when it, people don't want to buy because they know they're not going to make as much money, they're going to have yeah. to hold it and hold those costs over the winter. Yeah. And I think people, you know, not wanting to buy around the holidays and stuff like that, we've had pretty good luck with uh, just working around kind of the, let's say, November, December, January timeframe, a lot of January and February closings. Um, and that's that I think that's worked out in our favor as well. Um, I would say the crawl, you know, the house in crawl was, you know, was kind of dated, um, you know, a lot of needed, needed a lot of updates, older furniture. Um, you know, again, I would say that the photo, the listing photos were not very good. Um, and that, you know, I think that was a factor as well. And underperforming um, for people who were looking at the rental yep. data specifically for that property, yeah. you know, it was terrible because the owners kept it offline five, five or six months of the year. So. Yeah. So they used it for personal use, you know, half the year. Um, and I think like Beth said, the numbers that were published, um, with the listing, you know, were definitely underperforming what somebody would be expecting, um, in terms of like a, a six bedroom house on, in a beach market. Um, and that I think was probably a factor as well, but. You know, for us, we were like, okay, there's some value add here. We like the property. We like the location. We were just, you know, just here. It checks a lot of boxes. Yeah. Um, and then we just went for it. Um, there was definitely some work that was required. I mean, we ended up replumbing the whole yeah. house. So <laughs> that was unexpected. Like, <laughs> there's stuff like that that you know people will probably shy away from. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's just cost. You have to account for it. You have to account for the downtime and the money to get it done. Um, but it's just cost. You have to factor into the deal at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, and then I guess the last property is probably the most interesting acquisition, but, um, we did start getting into some off market, um, some off market stuff. Um, 
mostly direct. We um, tried some direct mail, all done ourselves, you know, not through a company or automation and just, you know, being very personal, personable and personal about it. Um, we just found a random person who wanted to sell their property and the rest, I guess, is kind of history. We, again, it was somebody who was not renting their property. Um, it was for personal use. They, you know, kind of saw the market was, was hot. Um, you know, we thought we got a, a good price for it, you know, and they, I think they got a very fair deal for it too. Um, in terms of, you know, we picked up all their costs in the closing. Um, you know, we gave them a, a very clean offer, you know, really nothing in the inspection and all that. And, you know, it worked out very well, I think for them and, and for us to get that last property. Yeah. Awesome. So a number of ways. Um, all right. So that brings us to the end of the show. So we asked the same three questions to everyone at the end of the show. And the first of which is what advice would you give to 20 year old Beth and Atticus? I'll go first on this because I probably needed the most advice at that age. Uh, so I, I think for me, I was very much an instant gratification person. Like I, you know, I lived my life in the moment. Um, and so what I would go back and tell myself is just, you know, work a little bit harder now, put in a little bit effort, more effort now, um, and, and get that reward at the end a little bit sooner. Um, because, you know, I had a lot of fun in college and I, you know, did a lot of fun things and lived my life. But if I had just kind of hunkered down, you know, five years earlier, man, I can't even imagine where we'd be now. So it's just, you know, just start, start sooner, start now, look at the big picture. Don't get caught up too much in the moment. I mean, live your life, have a good life, but you know, don't, don't get stuck in, I have to do everything I want to do right now. We would have balanced each other out really well back then. <laughs> so we didn't know each other when we were 20. No. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, for me, it was, you know, I, I wish I had started investing sooner. I think I had the ability to do so um, earlier in my in my life. Um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time, a lot of time working and trying to just build um, for myself and then, you know, obviously build for our family now. But, um, you know, I think investing sooner and just, not the limiting belief I think I had at that time was oh, I needed a ton of money to do this, um, to invest in general and trying to save up, you know, like hundreds of thousands of dollars to try to invest is you don't need to do that. Um, you can get started with a lot less than that. I think, you know, you have to have some money. You can't, you got to have something, you got to have reserves and all that. But, um, you know, I think that's definitely a limiting belief and something that I was, I was caught up in was just kind of waiting for that perfect time to get in. Totally agree with that. Great advice. And uh, number two, what advice would you give a new investor who's getting started today in 2022? Um, I think you got to start with your mindset. It really does all come back to mindset. Um, so if you, you know, if you just see like an opportunity and you, um, you know, kind of have like that ADHD brain, like, oh, let me try this thing. Right. And you don't like think about the big picture of it first then you're more likely to crash and burn. So for me, it started with getting in that mindset of like, what does it take to live a lifestyle that allows you to invest, that allows you to then move those investments forward and think about this passive income, these multiple streams of income, because it is a different lifestyle. It's it's not the norm. It's not what most people are doing. So you kind of got to get in that headspace first of like, okay, I'm breaking out of the box. I'm doing something different. These are my goals. This is my why. Um, and then I'm going to build the path forward from there. Yeah, also great advice. <laughs> I think definitely just starting, start somewhere, um, mm -hmm. you know, jump in. I think, you know, we can, we can wait, wait around a long time for that perfect opportunity. But, you know, as a newbie, I think, 
in hindsight, like that first deal is definitely the hardest. Um, and once you kind of get over the hump, things tend to move a lot more easily. You really can navigate much more quickly. Um, so, you know, I would say just, just get started. And like Beth said, I mean, people, people will, you know, tell you that it's, it's riskier, that it's hard or that, you know, you probably shouldn't do that. They're going to call um, you at midnight about a toilet. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, it is, it is a little bit different and, you know, there's a, there's a huge support group here, um, you know, with the short-term shop, um, and all the other owners. And I think that's a huge part of, of just the, um, the success and just knowing that there's that resource there to help you. Oh, well, I'm glad y'all have found value with that. All right. Last question. What is your favorite book that has impacted your mindset? Um, so I know there's a lot of great ones out there and so many of them have already been recommended on this show. So I'm going to go a slightly different direction. Um, going back with just the mindset in general. Um, I really enjoyed Glennon Doyle's book untamed. Um, and I think as a woman, especially in this field, like it can be really daunting. Um, you can, you know, kind of feel like, um, it's a man's world and you get kind of looked at as maybe not being as knowledgeable or not, um, you know, not having as clear of a path forward and as clear of a place. And I think that's changing rapidly, which is great. Um, but Untamed is a lot about um, really just like releasing some of those beliefs that we have, especially as women, but it does apply to everyone. Um, and really thinking about, you know, building the life you want without the boundaries that have been put in place um, by society, right? So, um, you know, not feeling like you have to stay on this path because that's the right path. Finding a path that makes sense for you, for your family, um, and for us, you know, real estate investing has been a huge part of that. Awesome. Nobody's recommended that one yet. So I'll have to check it out. It's a good one. Um, I think, you know, I think for me, um, extreme ownership um, was a was a big one for me by Jocko Willink. Um, I think Luke's talked about that one a little bit as well. Um, but it's uh, I think it's a really great book. It really kind of brings everything back to, you know, yourself, self-reflection. Um, you know, being really responsible for where you are um, and where you want to be and um, just reminding yourself that we kind of own the outcome of where we're going. Um, if you want something, if you want to do something, then, you know, we're responsible for making that happen. Like we have to we have to put a plan in place. We have to execute that plan. And then whatever those results are, whatever that outcome is, that's what we have to live with. And um, I think it's really important to just have that as part of your mindset going in that um, we are like each person is building is building what they want to. Um, and that's that's a huge part of it for us. Another great recommendation. All right, guys. Well, is there anything else that you feel like you meant to say or that we didn't touch on that you want to say to everybody before we go? Um, I guess really just, you know, there's no perfect way forward and there's no one right way to start or one right way to do things. And that's one of the awesome things we've gotten out of this show is just hearing a million different ways to approach something. And we're just average people. We, you know, we started as average people and, you know, we put a plan in place and we've just done our best to follow it. Um, so I think, you know, don't, don't get that shiny object syndrome, figure out the path forward that's best for you and adjust as needed, but don't try to follow the path that everybody else is doing. Just take in all that information, take in the value that other people provide and, and make your own path forward. Yeah. I think you guys have done a really, really good job of just keeping it simple, plowing forward. And you, and you know, now you have four great properties and I guess, I assume you're going to keep going, right? Yeah. Oh Yeah. That's the plan. We always say we're not looking and then we buy something. So. Say, right. Whenever we're not looking, we find something. So that <laughs> is always how it works. Absolutely. <laughs>
Awesome. Well, Beth and Atticus, thank you so much for coming on and we will catch you later. Thanks, Avery. Thank you very much.